This podcast is part of the Robots Radio Rocket Club, a program designed to help all podcasts reach their full potential. For information about joining the Robots Radio Rocket Club, check out robotsradio.net. Hello, and welcome to the Assassin's Creed Lorecast. My name is Austin, also known as Teacup. And my name is Shelby, also known as SheCup. Join us as we embark on unraveling all of your favorite mysteries from the Assassin's Creed universe. From Assassins to Templars to the mysterious Isu and more, we will seek to uncover it all. So join us, and maybe even take a leap of faith. Hello, and welcome to the Assassin's Creed Lorecast. My name is Shelby. You might also know me by the name of SheCup, and I am your co-host and guide for this podcast. And I'm also here with my co-host, and I will let him introduce himself. Uh, Yes, I am Austin, also known as Teacup. I am your gaming expert, lore enthusiast for the games. Lord Nerd is also an acceptable substitution. True, true. So, yeah. Well, so I know we're continuing our Assassins versus Templars series, but before we do that, um, should we talk about my playthrough? If you so desire. Okay, that was a weird way to say yes or no. Mm-hmm. Whatever you want. <laughs> um, well, yeah. So my current playthrough, I am still in Assassin's Creed 2. I finished Florence. I'm almost done with Tuscany. And I think I'm going to be moving on to whatever the next location is fairly soon. Right, Austin? Yeah. Okay. Maybe I'm still in the middle of something. We'll see. Mm-hmm. But I'm definitely liking it so far. Um the story has intrigued me more than Assassin's Creed 1 has. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing your playthrough. We'll keep us updated on your fun. Okay, well, let's get into what we're actually talking about today. All right. Well, today we're continuing our Assassin's versus Templar series. We're just keeping going down the line. So last week we ended kind of at the turn of the century uh, in England. And we're staying in Europe for where we're going today, which is the war to end all wars. War, war one. Spoiler alert. It did not end all the wars. (laughs) Yes, but at the time it certainly did feel like that. So to begin... Before we even get to World War One, we're going to go all the way back to ancient Egypt. Interesting. Yes. Um, so when Bayek of Siwa visited, visits a site in Egypt, he triggers an encoded message inaudible to him from from an unidentified female Isu that foretold of future historical events, among which were a labyrinth of trenches filled with mud and mustard gas. So that's obviously a reference to World War One, Right. Um, but could it 
be a reference to World War II? Um, unlikely, because just from historical, like there were trenches and stuff in World War II, but it wasn't as much trench warfare as World War One. Plus, mustard yeah. gas comes into popular use in World War One. Right. Right. Uh, and so yeah I mean that just kind of just shows more this like Isu foreseen into the future with these messages apparently Bayek doesn't hear that message the only people who are able to hear it would be Layla who's in the main animus interesting I don't remember that I don't either um, it, it's, it looks like this quest is in the gnome area, which I, I think I don't remember exploring very much of that area. So, right. Right. So anyway, so that's a little like precursor to all the way back in Egypt. We see the Isu already foresee this great war. So for you history nerds, World War II or World War I really kind of begins it's got there's a lot building up to it but it begins on june 28th of 1914 following the assassination of archduke franz ferdinand uh, and this war breaks out all over europe between the allied powers which are france england and russia until and then eventually the u.s and the central powers, which are uh, Austria, Austria-Hungary, Germany, and briefly Italy. Lots of stuff going on, right? Yeah, it's an important and scary time. Yes. So naturally, this is not really instigated by the Templars or assassins, but they take hold of this conflict. Um. So assassins desperate to keep the hold that they have in these areas, Russia, France, and England, and the United States to some extent, desperate to keep the hold they have on, on these areas, they start enlisting into the army. Many, many, many assassins flock and join the British army from the, from the British Brotherhood. And so you have the, this classic thing where you got the Templars on one side with the central powers in Germany and Austria-Hungary. And then you have the assassins on the allied powers, which France, United States, Britain. It's so interesting to me, though, that the assassins by this point in time or that the Templars really are they've allied more with the central powers and not the allied powers when I feel like their stronghold really is in the UK and in Britain specifically. So it's interesting to me that that's kind of flip-flopped. And I wonder, honestly, if it's not just like a writing device that they use to basically say or imply even and make sure that okay, assassin's good, Templar's bad. Yes. Well, remember that fast forward 20 or rewind 20 years 30 years the fry twins take down the british templar order and take london for the assassins yeah i did forget about that yeah 
so that has flip-flopped and france has historically almost always been an assassin hub so there's not really we know a lot about the various conflicts um we know our history that there's an intense warfare mustard gas is used with this trench warfare with harsh living conditions and it is a bloody 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 conflict it is the largest loss that the world has seen up until this point with each side taking losses in the millions by the end of the war um, and that's why they really talks about it like the war to end all wars and so we get to a point here where the assassins and templars are basically like they think this is it whoever wins this war is going to win the assassin templar war that's interesting. I definitely understand where they're coming from and why they would think that, but just the hindsight is funny. Yes. Um, so there are just two major events that we know of that I'll go through really quickly. Uh, so I'm sure we've all heard the famous story of the Christmas truce of 1914. Um, you know, there's yeah. the fame. I... Both you and I grew up Christian, and I cannot tell you how many Christmas Eve sermons I've heard that talk about the Christmas truce of 1914. I'm pretty sure there's also a movie about it. I think you're right. Um, like an old black and white kind of thing that would play on like the channel that plays MASH reruns all the time. Right. But, you know, there's the famous story of it's Christmas Eve or whatever, and they cross into no man's land and they sing Silent Night together. Um, mm -hmm. That's what happened. Well, something not so truce oriented happens during that. So a Templar by the name of Eirik Albert, who is a general in the German army, is assassinated by an unnamed British assassin just moments after the two who had worked together to save a wounded soldier's life. So the assassins take this opportunity to end this Templar's right or life during the Christmas truce. Do we know why they did this? Probably, uh, it's probably just the thing of an assassin takes the opportunity when they need it. It's interesting. The whole story and the whole mythos around the Christmas truce isn't entirely accurate anyway. Like they probably didn't know exactly when Christmas was. They wouldn't have understood each other because of the language barriers. Like there's a lot of situational contexts that don't necessarily make this story line up 100% anyways. But I do think that it's an important story we tell ourselves um, to remind each other that there is hope even in the darkest of times. And I still, so I still think it's valuable uh, because of that. So for me, this, this kind of insertion of war back into the narrative of truths kind of um, lessens that for me. Yeah. It's not my favorite thing, but it's what happens. So, in 1916, so this is two year, at the behest of Winston Churchill, who, who? is... 
I I don't know what his political position is at this point. Uh, he's not prime minister. Are you sure? Is he prime minister before and after Neville Chamberlain? You Dude, know more. Know. You know more about the British that period of British history than I do. I'm going to be honest. The only thing I know about British history involves the royal family. And I'm going to be also honest. I don't understand how their parliament works. So I don't really know anything about them at all. If there are any listeners out there who want to explain this to me, gladly welcome it. Um, But yeah, I also don't really care. (laughs) Right. So anyway, at the behest of Winston Churchill, the assassin Lydia Fry, who is the granddaughter of Jacob Fry, uh, she is employed to eliminate a German spy ring operating the ta- around the Tower Bridge near the Tower of London. So similar, okay. you know, we all have the, you know, the stories of the German bombing raids on London in World War II. There's kind of similar things that are happening across like the English Channel and similar points of Germany kind of pushing into London in the same way. And so they send this ring, the Templars send this ring of German spies to help Lydia or to like try to disrupt the uh, English, the English war effort. And so Lydia Fry just happens upon Winston Churchill while she's hunting a Templar and she kills him. And then Templar's like, or Churchill is like, hey, we need to take care of these German spies. Why don't you do it for me? Um, And so the spy ring was led by a Templar master spy. We, that was just the master spy. We're not told a name who eventually falls to Lydia's blade. We learn that this Templar is something called a sage, which I think we've briefly talked about on the lore cast before, but just a refresher, a sage is someone who bears the soul of an Isu. So it's different than like Connor or Desmond who have high concentrations of Isu DNA, this person holds the soul and consciousness of an Isu, typically a specific Isu, which is Aida, the husband of Juno. So do we see this in the games? Yes. As well, Sages? Mm -hmm. Yes. Is this part of the Valhalla story? Yes, it is part of the Valhalla story, but that's a little different than what these specific Sages are and so this is a point because in the game because remember all the historical stuff we're we're experiencing as someone's shifting through someone's memory with intermittent like isu breaking up and entering these uh these memory like viewings with their own stuff so juno is the one who actually shows us this memory interesting why does she do that um well at this point this is a little spoiler but at this point the instruments of the first will are trying to recreate and abstergo are trying to recreate a isu body trying to recreate an isu um, which is why they're focusing on memories in london because they're looking for what's called the shroud of eden because they believe it's healing pat properties will help them build an isu 
that sounds like a terrible idea. Yeah. Um, but a sage has a, an extraordinary amount of Isu DNA, like well beyond any any uh, living descendant with Isu DNA. So it, it'd be like the closest thing they have to actually having an Isu in front of them with a sage. Right. Um, so the important thing about a sage is that they are both a new person who lives with their own memories, but they also contain the memories of that Isu and that is passed down in the generations. So throughout history, there are several, several sages. There's a sage in, um, black flag. There's a sage in, there's a sage in Assassin's Creed 3, though that was before we even knew what sages were. There's a sage in Unity and Syndicate. Like, Okay, so are sages born or are they created? They are born. So how do they end up with so much DNA from the Isu? It is really complicated, and that's for a whole nother episode for how that works. Um, but it's like some sort of conscious trans... Con- like conscious transference and things like that. Okay, that sounds weird. We can move on. <laughs> yes. So that's really all we know about World War One. Um, oh. So the conflict ends in 1918. So there's only two more years after this, and you know the U.S. is about to get involved. And once the U.S. gets involved, the war goes a lot quicker. Um, right just mainly because this is kind of how the u.s plays both war wars you know we let britain and france take the brunt of it and when they're exhausted we come in and just be like look at us we're the heroes yeah which is i mean i think it's kind of annoying but we'll move on it's yeah i mean back home at least or back in the United States, there was a lot of debate with Congress on whether we should get involved in this or not. Um, right. Kind of our transition from our what's called the age of isolation. Which this, my research didn't show this, but I would assume that the assassins in the Americas are the ones pushing Congress to declare war so that they can go and get support for the assassins in Europe. That's Especially probably- since there's this idea that this is going to be the war to end all wars. Right. The world doesn't stop for World War I. Like other things keep going on in these other countries. Mm-hmm. And we're going to get into that. And one important thing is, is that Russia historically pulls out of World War I because of their revolution that's going to come about. Yeah, that's a big deal. Um, and... We're going to talk about that because World War I and the Russian Revolution really set the stage for World War II to happen. It's a bold claim. Uh, well, I mean, think about it. Like, the, the, the countries are basically the same on each side for World War II. I mean, yes, they are, but... I feel like I feel like World War II really happens because of the way that like Germany is treated and you know the extreme taxes that lead to 
their total like economic breakdown and then you know adolf hitler and the nazi party are able to come in and blame that on the jewish people and other groups that they quote find undesirable um so i i don't know if it's fair to just say like russia is the reason that world war ii happens no but my point was is that it's helping set the stage for what russia will be for world war ii sure that's totally agree um and this is an important thing you know it's this idea that this is the war to end all wars and we're about to enter a pretty like prosperous economic time right before a really not prosperous economic time with the roaring 20s in most of the world except for germany really And so I think that this is also a point that I would say, you know, Lydia Fry meets Churchill, and I'm sure that the assassins with their establishment, they've started putting more political visors in the ear of Woodrow Wilson and all these other people, even though the U.S. isn't going to take place in the Treaty of Versailles. So I think that the assassins in this point probably take a little vindictiveness on this to end all wars and are trying to create a state where they think they, the Templars won't rise to power again. Mm. Yeah, I definitely see that. Uh, which is like, I think the failure, one of the failures of both orders is that when they have a big win, they let arrogance take over to think that they've really mm-hmm. defeated their enemy right yeah so anyway that's really all we have about world war one I. I think now would be a good time for a break okay well welcome to the break this is the middle of the show this is where we talk about all things that have to do with the assassin's creed lore cast and not the lore of assassin's creed so uh the first thing i always tell you is that the number one way to support us is to like share subscribe and tell other people about our show and the number two way to support us right now is to rate and review us you can leave us a rating with words on apple you don't have to listen on apple you just have to have an account and if you leave us a five star uh, review on apple we will read it out on the show or you can give us a rating just with numbers on spotify both are super, super helpful to us um, and really uh, help our rankings in the show. Um, and then the next thing I have to tell you about is our Discord server. We have a server called the Cups Podcasting and More. It's the official home of all of our podcasts, including this one, the Dragon Age Lorecast, and Austin's other show, Holocron Histories. You can find us on that server, talk to other people about our shows and episodes, and also just share fun memes and pictures of your pets and just hang out with other people who have similar gaming interests as you. Or you can join the Robots Radio Discord server. And uh, Robots Radio is the home of all the Robots Radio and Robots Radio Rocket Club shows, of which we are a part. And if you want to hang out with a bunch of cool people and maybe even find a few new podcasts, 
the robots radio server is where it's at. Do we have anything else for the mid break or is that everything, Austin? I think that's everything. All right. Well, this was a short one this week, but let's get back to the episode. All right. So as I said, Russia has to withdraw from World War I because of a revolution that is about to take place in their country. Um, so yeah, we're going to talk about that as a brief kind of end to the episode. And then next week, we'll continue on with World War II. But let's get into the Russian Revolution. So in 1917, after the first war brought Russia to near collapse because wars are expensive, the Russian Revolution broke out. Uh, the assassins supported the people's desire for a new government and pressured the czar, Nicola II, to, Nicholas II, to abdicate. So while this is known as the Russian Revolution, it actually is composed of a series of smaller revolutions between war and, warring factions within the changing Russian nation. So as this is going on, different groups are coming up to basically say, hey, this is a change, this is a change, this is a change. Basically until one group comes, the Bolsheviks. So the leader, which is Vladimir Lenin, he is friends with Nikolai Orlov, who he asked to kill Nicholas II. So Nikolai is unwilling to comply because he doesn't feel that Nicholas II deserves to die. He doesn't feel like he is an oppressive ruler. He just, the assassins just support, you know, the desire for the people to dictate what kind of government they want, which is very assassin. Yeah, I think it totally tracks that the assassins would um, be on, not on the side of the royal family in the case. And this is a point, you know, Jacob and Edie Fry back in the day are big friends of Karl Marx. Which is yeah. kind of like where the ideology with the Bolsheviks comes in. So the assassins are already kind of been exposed to this socialism, communism, whatever you want to call it, ideology with their friendship with Karl Marx back in England. So the assassin basically he agrees to infiltrate the residence only to discern determine if the czar's new scepter was a staff of Eden. So the assassin Nikolai, he spares Nicholas's life and Nicholas II tells him about Rasputin's mysterious shard, which happens to be a piece of the Staff of Eden. So Nikolai kills Rasputin or, and takes the artifact and he plans to leave Russia to start a new family. With the disarray, the Bolsheviks seize control of Russia after after the October Revolution, in reward for their support, Lenin and the Russian Academy of Sciences awarded the assassins several of the Academy's facilities, which is very, very important. And I'll talk about in the legacy, but this sets up the Russian Brotherhood to be a headquarters of research. Fascinating. Um, yes. So in 1918, so we're nearing the end of World War I, 
Nikolai took up one final task from the Brotherhood to retrieve the piece, a piece of Eden, a precursor box from the possession of the Imperial family. Uh, after Nikolai infiltrated the Imperial house, the Templars murdered the Imperial family to obtain the artifact while only the Tsar's daughter, Anastasia, survived. Um, yeah, so I was going to say I have one very important question, and that is, does Anastasia survive or no? Yes. Uh, so this she does. It, she survives the attack on the Tsar's family. Right. From the Templars. Uh, so she meets Nikolai with the precursor box. Uh, and when the box comes in contact with the splinter of the staff that Nikolai got from Rasputin, uh, it transfers the consciousness of Shan Jun to Anastasia, which is another assassin. So this is another point of consciousness being transferred via pieces of Eden. Okay, so just to clarify, this consciousness that's being transferred is not an Isu god. This is another assassin's consciousness that's being transferred. Correct. So that's interesting. Right. So we're kind of seeing a little bit of a precursor to the bleeding effect, basically. Okay. Okay. Because remember, the bleeding effect is basically that you can't separate the past from the present or the future or whatever. And yeah. so it's all bleeding into whatever. The same. Yes. And so it's kind of like a similar thing that happens. An Isu sage just has a kind of more streamlined ability to do this. But, you know, many sages go mad because of the consciousness that's inside their head. No, I didn't know that. They, you know, lose their mind. But I think it makes sense that they would. They're not, just because they're Isu, and I don't know if the if, if God is the right terminology for them, but it makes sense, like, they, they're not, they're not impervious to harm. So it makes sense that they would be affected as well. Right, and it's normally a case of the, mind and experience of the human who they're sharing with is in competition for control. Anastasia is then brought back to the Assassin's Brotherhood with the box to Moscow. Well, the Assassins are not good people. Sure, as we know. Yes. So instead of like caring for this woman or young teenager probably at this point, I don't, I'm very confused about her age at the time her family is killed. Honestly, she could still have been a child. Right. So instead of caring for this person who suffered a hugely traumatic event, the assassins imprison her instead. That tracks. Yeah. So this obviously does not sit well with Nikolai. He betrays the Brotherhood and rescue her gives her new identification papers belonging to an Anna Anderson. And then Nikolai leaves Russia again with his fa family. And then after Lenin's death in 1924, the Russian assassins faced oppositions from a new Soviet government led by Joseph Stalin, a Templar puppet of Yuri Petrovich Fichtnager, a Templar in Poltlborough, started a counter-revolutionary commission to hunt down the assassins and turn the Russian Academy of Sciences into a Stalinist organization, forcing the assassin mentor to go into hiding. I have two thoughts. Number one, 
I'm very impressed by your attempting of the names. Question is hard. Number two. Thought number two. This is basically the plot of Anastasia. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like, at least the beginning part uh, where, like, before she tries to find her long-lost family or whatever. Um, But... I do think it's interesting that it would be very easy to fall into the narrative and make all of communist Russia like the Templars. Yeah. But they don't do that. I mean, they're pretty close, though. Yeah. Um, And I think that this is a point where we see that different cultural, like, contexts interpret the creed differently. Mm -hmm. Say more. Um, Just that... The Russian assassins tend to be a little more brutal. They tend to be a little more success by any means necessary. Um, Which kind of just tracks with the like culture that they grow up with and like the concept. I feel like the Assassin's Creed, like it's creed is very easy to understand from a Western European, Western Civ point of view. But when you take it and you put it into contexts that are not that, it buds up against what people are used to experiencing. I definitely see that point of view, but I also wonder if we're not giving enough credence to the fact that these people are in times of severe war, because I think war be more brutal too i don't think it's just cultural and i think it might be a little bit unfair uh just to just to categorize russian culture as necessarily a brutal culture which i'm not saying you do that but i think that could be an implication of what uh you just said so i think i think war and the presence of it and the overwhelming presence of such a terrifying war um as well as a revolution in your own country has a tendency to make people more prone to violence than they normally would be. I think that's fair. It's a fair point. And I also think that another important fact is that Russia is now set up as this research country. And and Russia, the Russian assassins are very much like an experimental assassin brotherhood. I mean, it is the Moscow assassins who William Miles gives the animus plans to. And if you remember from our animus episode, that's the experiment that basically drives the brotherhood mad and turns them into cold blooded killers. Yeah. Yeah. I do remember that. Um, And I think that, I think there's a lot of desperation in these assassins and Templars in this time period because they think this is the time. Like, if we lose here, we've lost forever. Yeah, and when you have desperate people, they are more willing to sacrifice themselves and other people and their country and, you know, all kinds of things. I mean, look at William Miles and Clay Cosmeric. Yeah, a perfect example of that desperation absolutely um and so really like kind of like the legacy of this is it basically sets up the assassins and templars to be in another conflict about 
you know, 10 years down the road. And that conflict projects both groups into where they're going to be in the 21st century. Interesting. And yeah, so we'll talk about, you know, World War II. Uh, there will be a little bit of kind of double lapping with the Animus episode. So if you want to fresh refresh yourself on some stuff from the Animus episode, that'd definitely be helpful. But World War II is coming. And if you thought World War I was the war to end all wars, just buckle up, buddy. Yeah. Yeah, you ain't seen nothing yet, huh? Right. Um, and this really sets up kind of where the Templars are going to go with becoming Abstergo. Mm. Which the Abstergo identity is a very new one for like this conflict. And I'm, I hope that this series has kind of like shown that, that like where the Templars now is very different than where they were historically. And Whereas historically they've infiltrated other established organizations with Abstergo, they have made their own establishment that they can hide behind and control power from. Hmm. Yikes. So yeah. Um, that's really all we got for this episode. It's a little shorter, but that's okay. That's okay. Yeah. Um, well, Thanks for joining us on the Assassin's Creed Lorecast. We will see you next week. All right. Thanks for listening to the Assassin's Creed Lorecast. You can find us on Twitter at Assassin's Creed Lorecast, or you could talk to us on Discord in the Robots Radio Discord or our personal Discord server. Both links found in this episode's descriptions. Thank you for listening, and always stay to the shadows to serve the light, Assassins. Hi, welcome to Three Count Thoughts. Let me introduce the crew real quick. Hi, I'm Maverick Stone. I'm Romer. And I'm Jaxus. Join us as we talk all things wrestling. Each week, we'll take a topic from the wrestling world, knock it around a bit, and then go over the week in wrestling from a strictly fan perspective. We can be found on all major podcast catchers. We can also be found at Three Count Thoughts on both YouTube and Twitter. Or you can send us an email using 3CountThoughts at gmail.com. Okay, are you ready? Ring the bell.